I'd printed out a map of the country mm-hmm. and I'd put up pins all over it with my wife and I was like I'm going to visit all these breweries in the next month and I'd like started to book flights and rental cars and everything yeah. and every single one of them said no and like so I, I had no trip and it was like the saddest moment and I had to like totally pivot the business plan Hi there folks welcome to another episode of King of the Ride podcast this is a fun one. This is where beer and athletics collide. This is where entrepreneurialism meets athletics. And this conversation all starts in little Middlebury, Vermont, right down the road. Middlebury College is my alma mater. It is also our guest, Bill Schufelt's alma mater. No less, we were classmates graduating in 2005, a little while back. We probably took some similar classes as we were both economics majors. He took that route to Wall Street and a successful career in finance. I, of course, took mine to the Bicycle World Tour. He then took quite a detour from life burning the candle at both ends to start a little upstart called Athletic Brewing. And quite frankly, he created the category of non-alcoholic craft beer, which even five years ago was an unheard of category, and now it is a mega booming business, all of which we're going to talk about today. I'll be honest, I was a naysayer. If I wanted beer, I will drink beer. Thank you very much, alcohol included. However, Bill saw an unmet need. My wife likes beer, for example, but she's pregnant. Let's call a spade a spade. Alcohol is delicious, but it is a performance inhibitor. So, to be at your absolute best without the need for alcohol, there's something better than just sparkling water Enter Athletic Brewing. Segwaying a career in finance to that of the non-alcoholic craft beer maker was not in his original plans, as we're going to talk about, but man, oh man, has Bill made it work. Between he and his business partner and brewmaster John, they've invented this category. By their estimation, they are filling a void in the realm of, of maybe an underserved $10 to $20 billion industry. This is a story of entrepreneurialism, being a visionary, being an athlete, being someone who cares about how they perform, something that I think you will appreciate. Something else that I think you will appreciate is that I cannot say enough about Therabody's Recovery Air Jet Boots. Now look, I have tangled myself up in compression boots over the years. I have enjoyed their benefit, but to be honest, they have been a bit cumbersome as you are sometimes wrapped up in tubes and wires and they don't fit into a suitcase. Furthermore, over the years, you've seen prices north of two or $3,000. That is prohibitive, to say the least. To be on your feet all day, to get through another hard workout, to travel, all these things lead to sore, heavy legs. And as a result, I encourage you to sit back, relax, recover. Go to therabody.com king to get your Therabody recovery airs today. Starting at $699, a fraction of their previous price, or as low as $59 a month with a firm, this is something you cannot miss out on. They are awesome. Plus, with Recovery Air's 60-day money-back guarantee and free shipping, there is no risk. Don't like them? Send them on back. Again, that is therabody.com slash king, T-H-E-R-A-B-O-D-Y dot com slash king, K-I-N-G. Well, that's about it from here. Next up, our conversation with Bill Schufelt.
Bill Schufeld, thank you very much for taking the time to come on King of the Ride podcast. Um, let's see. Now, now Middlebury College is the tie that, that binds the two of us here. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting story because Middlebury has this unintended unintended uh, story where we're a powerhouse professional cycling program. Um, you know, as a small liberal arts school, we're largely Division three sports, but then we have this this cycling program that we don't recruit or anything. People just end up at the school who ride bikes really well. We have a couple of Olympians, uh, professional mountain bikers, professional road cyclists. You get a guy like Fareed Nouri, who's a good friend, who recently graduated, um, who started Mountain Bike Afghanistan, which is a really amazing organization. You were a football player at Middlebury, and it's it's really cool that that amid this athletic school we're frankly all candidates for athletic brewing. Um, so with that all said, let's take a massive step back. I'm curious, this is a very vague question, I'm curious your upbringing. Like what sports were you playing? How do you end up at Middlebury? Ready, set, go. For sure, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's so fun to reconnect. And um, yeah, I so I pretty much... I loved sports from the get-go and I would have played any sport, any season, any time, any game, anywhere. And I yeah. think that very much still applies to my current like workout regime and athletic career in that like very, like you'll never like find me on a podium. Like I'm, I'm not fast. Didn't excel. I guess football is the one thing I was like above average at. Um, and I ended up in football swimming and baseball through high school um, because those were, the most like structured sports I was probably best at. Ironically, skiing might have been my best sport that like would have been a great fit for Middlebury for sure if I had any foresight. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and so, but I, I also didn't like find my love of fitness until after my athletic career, unfortunately, too. Mm -hmm. Like I would kill to go back and like go on long rides with my freshman roommate, John, or like I've done more hikes and outdoor stuff in Vermont, like since I graduated probably than when I was there, I unfortunately. It. Yeah. I and it's like, like when I go on a business trip to Vermont now and like call on accounts, I'll wake up at like 5am and go up a mountain before I start my day, which I wish I had been doing in college. <laughs> um, I did tons of skiing for sure. Um, but yeah, my athletic career was, um, any sport, tons of skiing, football, swimming, and baseball through high school. Um, and then other stuff in the summer as well that was like less official. And then at Middlebury, I did football. Um, and it, I, D3 football is probably like the perfect balance for me where I could take it fairly seriously. I wish I had taken it more seriously. It's definitely a regret. Um, but like met some lifelong friends on that team as well. And like the, kind of work-life balance of a D3 sport program was like perfect for me. Um, and then it, it was kind of like after I quit football, I was like, I started to like jog more like leisurely and I'd like, I'd find myself. So I'd never been on the Middlebury cross country trail before I quit football. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I played through junior year and started to get some pretty bad shoulder and back injuries. And so I didn't play senior year. Okay. But then in senior year, I started to lose like 20 pounds. Like I wasn't playing D-line anymore. Sure. And like discovered the Middlebury cross-country trail. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And like such a great loop. 
And then the country roads then would start running on like longer dirt roads and stuff like that. And it kind of like inched up and like found my fitness. And then all of a sudden, um, I don't know if you remember Mike Murray from our class at Middlebury. Um, I think so. But he was in, so it was probably like four years after we graduated, me, him, and a few other people were in this boxing group. Um, we were boxing at like 4.30 in the morning before work in New York City. Wow. And that's when I like absolutely loved, fell in love with fitness. And since then, I'll do anything under the sun. Right on. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned it there. How? What's the segue from Middlebury to New York? Um, well, actually, let me cor- correct me if I'm wrong. You studied economics, is that right? Yep. And, yeah. And... Would you agree or disagree? I feel like most economic majors at Middlebury College end up in finance, most likely in New York City. Yeah, it was. I definitely fell into like the default canon of every like everyone in the town I grew up in Connecticut was in finance, and then yeah. at Middlebury in the time we were there, especially, it was like investment banks would come up and do their super days, and mm-hmm. so many people would just get funneled to New York City from there, mm-hmm. and. Um, I'm sure if you went to Middlebury now, it's probably like tech startups and VC and much more diversified fund stuff than it was at that point. But it was like a really standard career path. Um, And I kind of fell right in line with that lockstep. And I didn't have any creative ideas or anything or inspiration at that time. And it seemed like a perfectly good route to go. Um, But like it, it was a soul crushing career for like the 12 years I was in it. Were you doing the, the, 80, 100-hour weeks? I mean, the typical grind that I suppose we hear about, but uh, I can't say I've ever <laughs> experienced. Yeah, it was like I was like 6 to 6 every day. So yeah. I'd wake up early, work out 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., like super intense at the office. Um, I worked at the hedge fund that the show Billions is based on. We're um, enjoying that show now. And so, <laughs> yeah. I, I still can't watch it. It's a little too close to home for me. But um, it was just like a really intense day job without like a real path to fulfillment. Um, but at, at the same time, it was intellectually challenging. It was stable. It was a great job to like, like I loved the people I worked with. It was financially stable for me and my family. Um, and I, I didn't have any other ideas or passions that I really wanted to follow at that time. So it was a perfectly good path. Yep. Although, like, I used to hear things like people saying, like, love what you do, never work a day in your life. And I would, like, just, like, be, like, absolutely poo-pooing it inside my brain and be like, that is, there's no, like, I hated my job so much that not only did I have, like, the sun, like, terrible Sunday scaries because of how badly Monday was going to hit, but, like, it used to start to ruin my Saturdays, how bad my Sunday was going to be before I got to Monday. Oh, that's rough. That is rough. <laughs> um, okay, so moving along in the chronology, at what point does the term non-alcoholic craft beer even enter your radar? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was at Middlebury, I was probably like one of the last people you'd think that would ever go into non-alcoholic beer for sure. And uh, I don't think anyone on the Middlebury campus was thinking about non-alcoholic beer. And like, so like so little of the population, it was just like a totally forgotten category sitting there in plain sight. But as I fell in love with fitness, um, my wife is an incredible plant-based chef. 
Um, and so like we were eating healthier, I was working out more. My whole career was performance oriented. And I was like, I was so measured on merit every day that I really wanted to be my best. And alcohol just had no, like, I don't know exactly what the moment was. Um, I guess I was training for my first ultra was the reason I officially didn't drink for 30 days to see how that felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt amazing. And it was like the ceiling was lifted off. It was like the ultimate life hack was uncovered and I never went back to drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, like I still lived in New York. I was going to four work dinners a week. I loved going like food is one of my favorite things. So like going out to a dinner with my wife and, like the drink you have with a meal is almost like half the experience in many ways. And to have that taken away at not only those occasions, but like weddings, barbecues, finish line celebrations, training rituals, like all these moments with, there was like a hollowness to it without a good beer. And, you know, I was pretty unashamedly drinking Odul's and all the options that have been around for 50 years um, in all those occasions. But, it left me thinking like there's got to be something more. And as I started talking to my wife about that, she was like kind of grabbed my shoulder. It was like, she saw the impact that had on my life, that choice. And like the chance to take that to like tens of millions of people, she was like, you should at least explore this and see if it's possible. And she's like this financial career that's killing you on the inside there's a chance at real fulfillment here. And I don't know if I would have connected those dots without my wife, like literally grabbing my shoulder. I remember exactly where we were. And so that's when non-alcoholic beer starts to come into the picture. Yeah. But like I started to do research at that point and I was like, whoa, this is actually like, so in terms of like the market like so non-alcoholic beer is huge everywhere except in the u.s like the non-alcoholic oh nice i have the same one freeways (laughs) um so non-alcoholic beer is already huge everywhere else in the rest of the world like the european non-alcoholic beer market is over 30 times the size of the u.s wow um and it's totally socially acceptable i think the u.s still has like prohibition era stigmas around not drinking Uh that people just don't really want to talk about as much um but like alcoholism is a major problem. And then there are just so many people who don't drink for positive lifestyle reasons or medical reasons or any number of reasons. Um, and I realized, you know, 50% of people at least are probably underserved by beverage options. And then probably another 30% would love to have a great beer the other five nights of the week. And it's just not there. But then so like the economic case was one thing and I worked on that for like a year and I wasn't like about to quit my job or anything, but then me and my wife were talking about it and we realized there are 15 million Americans who have an alcohol use disorder. And like, I didn't realize alcoholism was like truly that big a problem. And then there are 50% of adults who go to restaurants and have terrible options or don't feel included in social situations. And I just saw this opportunity. If we could make moderation cool and like, like healthy options, socially acceptable by just like making a great product with good marketing, like there's this really clear path to positively influencing tens of millions of lives. And it was like, once me and my wife had that conversation, I quit my job two days later 
and was out the door on this endeavor. And then I very quickly also found out that no one else wanted to talk about non-alcoholic beer with me, <laughs> even though I was, even though I was convinced the whole world didn't want to talk about it still. Yeah. So. Um, man, that makes me think of any number of things. Uh, my wife, Laura is currently pregnant, uh, due in June. Congratulations. We, thank you very much. We, we love happy hour and, uh, it's, it's a challenge to, to sate her appetite. And so athletic has been a, a huge help, um, amid this very growing, uh, pocket of, of food and Bev, so to speak. So, I mean, it's amazing what you've done there. Um, it makes me think of Thank you. all kinds of craft food. It's like food is food is food is food until you find something exquisite. Like, Olive oil is just generic olive oil until you have like fresh pressed olive oil from Italy and then it's just ethereal. Or a Hershey bar is a Hershey bar is a Hershey bar until you have extraordinary Belgian chocolate or Swiss chocolate. Um, you know, for the longest time, coffee was the same thing, beer was the same thing. There's like, you know, with all due respect to what Budweiser's has done, Bud is Bud is Bud until you have a great craft beer. And living here in, in Vermont, we have great options. Um, I heard you say something in a in a podcast once that was really interesting to me. It's that that excellent food often serves two purposes. It's a reward as well as an indulgence, whereas alcohol almost exclusively is an indulgence. Uh, I mean, uh, riff off that. Talk talk about that. What yeah. alcoholic is, alcohol is for for society? There. I love what you were just saying, by the way, too. It's um, like, I thought like garlic is garlic is garlic. Like you were saying about number of foods until me and my wife started growing it in the backyard. And it was like, oh my goodness, like this is a totally different garlic. Mm -hmm. And yeah, chocolate is an amazing example. Like if you go online and like, there's some amazing like organic chocolate websites or aggregators. They, um, so I'm totally speaking your language on that. Tomatoes, um, like yeah, rock hard tomato that you could throw against the wall and it would like crack the wall. <laughs> versus what you grow in the backyard, it's like, oh man, that's just that's life changing. Anyway, yeah, and you've done. I feel my, like sorry. My whole point there is that's what you've done with craft beer because again, with due respect to Oduls, Oduls is Oduls is Oduls until you have a craft in a beer, and that's extraordinary. Yeah, so that was kind of my experience going from where so. When we went to college in Middlebury, there was already great craft beer in Vermont, and it was everywhere. And any bar or restaurant you went to, you could get awesome craft beer. It kind of blew my mind when I moved to New York after that. I was like, wow, they are so far behind in New York City. Hmm. And they caught up. But then when alcohol was kind of taken away from me, it absolutely blew my mind that like no non-drinkers were thinking about this like and bring that to the world like it so even if you're a drinker but like a two night a week drinker if you can have like a great beer that pairs with your food five nights a week Mm -hmm. that's like a great weeknight treat on a stressful day or on a friday night like when like for example like i used to have like two glasses of wine and then try to go for a long run on saturday morning Mm -hmm. and you're just like just so dehydrated when you like the moment you head out the door Mm -hmm. and since since i stopped drinking like i don't even need to bring water with me for like a 12 to 15 mile run which would have blown my mind years ago obviously yeah and um 
those indulgent moments too, like we deserve those as people, like the world's a stressful place. And like, I definitely don't want to take away anyone's alcohol or anything ever. And like, I also, um, like I, I don't eat dessert every night of the week, but when I eat dessert, I want it to be awesome too. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it, you want your indulgences to be great. And like, I want to have like a really thoughtful dessert on my Friday night that I can just crush and love or like after a long workout on Saturday. And yeah, I think beer falls in that category too, where you don't just want to be consuming mindless garbage. You want great stuff. And if you can get those indulgences, but incorporate it into your daily habits too, all the better. Yeah. Um, not if sorry if they're positive indulgences like if you're talking about <laughs> organic ingredients well crafted like that's the kind of routine you can really build on yeah um i i am and i imagine the majority of our listeners are you are that venn diagram overlap of an athlete and a unabashed beer lover um so i'm i'm familiar with the brand you guys have done a great job getting into cycling and endurance sports but still tell me and maybe inform our listener, talk to me about the brand. I mean, to go from the early phases, which which I understand were nothing but speed bumps or roadblocks or, or seeming impossibilities, to now having the first, what, non-alcoholic tap room and two breweries across the country. I mean, talk about that that crazy process. Yeah, it. so it wasn't... Um... So yeah, athletic wasn't like dreamed up in a focus group and like, I wasn't, I didn't have to Google like, where do young, healthy adults hang out on weekends or like, where can I meet? Like, it was just so intuitive to me because I was like, I wasn't on podiums like you, but I was like finishing in the middle of the pack of Spartan races and um, doing like triathlons or relays, trail ultras and like, I would literally like I'll do any workout from a 10 minute workout to a trail ultra and sure. as long as community and I can break a sweat and have fun doing it. Um, so I just thought of all those places, like, where am I going to? So like, we're talking about like a very hated category at the time and people had no interest. So like billboards and stuff, people would have just shrugged off immediately. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want to just share it with people who are in a good mood. They're receptive and they're thirsty. And I'm like, oh, like, I'll just start bringing it to races I run. And like, I would, so usually I would just go set up earlier and run the race before it officially started. Otherwise, like, I'd finish halfway back. But um, <laughs> I actually have done this where like, sorry, not to go on a tangent, but like, like, I've gotten to a trail ultra like an hour before the start or like a trail half marathon and like barely beaten the finishers back to the starting line. And it's like so embarrassing when the aid station people are like screaming, like you're in first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, um, <laughs> but so anyway, I was like that first summer, I like picked 75 races of all different disciplines, sports from, from biking to regular road marathons, trail ultras, Ironmans, um, local 5Ks, and gave out hundreds of beers every weekend, talked to people in person, ran the races with them. I was almost always sweaty behind the tent myself. And I got made fun of constantly. But I was like, you just got to try the beer, trust me. Like, you can make fun of me as much as you want. And we like found a really organic community that way. And um, it wasn't 
So I, I would say too, like of our pro athlete team and our ambassadors. Um, so we have like 1500 amateur ambassadors who are just like really awesome athletes and community members in their own right. Um, and then a pro athlete team too. Um, that's so amazing. Um, I would say 90% of them have come to us organically as a brand, like, cause we've like met them in the world. They get it or they've tried it and reached out. And so it really just started like a thousand true fans, like building that community and then having people reach out and like, um, so we've been really fortunate to meet some incredible people in the world. How about in, in those early phases when you're at the race and you're handing out beers left, right and center, did it look like this? I mean, how about even that, that super early phase? Did you have a name? Did you have multiple brews or was it a single beer and said, okay, I hope this thing works? So after I quit my job, there was another year and a half before we launched. Mm -hmm. um, and basically every dinner during that year, I would steer the conversation to like the naming of the brewery and like ruin dinner conversation. Yeah. Um, but um <laughs> Yeah. It, when I went into Whole Foods for the first time, like, so John and I were, so there was just nothing but rejection after I quit my job. Every contract brewer in the country said they didn't want to brew it. So we had to build, we built our own brewery. Um, and then John, who I found after through a ton of rejection, he's our other co-founder. He had won every award under the sun on the alcoholic brewing side. He was a brewer in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, but had like one of his biggest accolades, his IPA had gotten a silver in the world beer cup. in I think 2016, which is like the Olympics of beer, basically sure. every brewer in the country, it was probably like 6,000 brewers going for that category probably. Um, and so by far the most talented person I'd talked to after being rejected by like 250 people, he was like, I get it. And he moved across the country with his wife and two kids. And we homebrewed in an empty warehouse, um, basically by ourselves, two people who didn't know each other on Gatorade jugs um, for basically a full year. Um, and when it started to taste good, we started hand bottling it into just brown glass bottles. And I was bringing it around to like Whole Foods and everything. Yeah. And Whole Foods like immediately got it and brought it in and gave us a shot. And then, um, yeah, then... We started obviously buying cans and stuff once we had a canning line. So, and as you're getting yeah. denied from contract breweries without, you know, giving me your insider secrets, is the brewing process all that much different than brewing alcoholic beer? I mean, is are they so, are they are they undertaking some huge investment that inherently would be like, yes, that's a stupid decision? Why do you suppose everybody was saying no? Well, I, I think in hindsight, like now I understand the industry better and I think they're totally justified in saying no. And I have like no ill will whatsoever. Like I didn't know what I was doing and it was too early and I didn't have my recipes even. Got it. I couldn't have afforded the batch sizes that would really make sense for me to be a good client anyway. So like they probably did me the best service by saying no. Um, although it was a really sad moment. Um, I had this I printed out a map of the country mm -hmm. and I put up pins all over it at, with my wife. And I was like, I'm going to visit all these breweries in the next month. And I had like started to book flights and rental cars and everything. Yeah. And every single one of them said no. And like, so I, I had no trip and it was like the saddest moment. And I had to like totally pivot the business plan and like contemplate building a brewery for non-alcoholic beer, which was like 
a really scary proposition. Like no one had ever built a brewery for non-alcoholic beer. Um, when I met up with John, credit to John, his move is probably even crazier than mine. Like, so I had quit my job, um, but he had a wife and two kids in Santa Fe and he picked up and moved to Connecticut to just brew in an empty warehouse with me. Um, no one had ever built a non-alcoholic brewery before. Uh, we didn't have a recipe. I told him I didn't want to use any of the existing methods out there. And so not only that, I was like wiping off all the traditional methods. And But he was like, I get it too. Because like if any of these methods worked, one of the 10,000 brewers in the country would be making great non-alcoholic beer at least. Yeah. So um, and we tried all those on small scale as well, just to like do the diligence. But me and John came up with a method where it's all natural. It's just making small tweaks to the brewing process at like 10 different stages that like kind of as a mosaic add up to a fully fermented beer. That's just below 0.5. Huh. Um, so it's like little tweaks in time, temperature, pH that like all add up to like a fully fermented, but under like under attenuated beer essentially. Were you a home brewer prior to that? Did you have any idea what you were doing? Or were you just like, eh, a couple jugs and a bit of luck and so science? I had really never brewed a beer before in my life. I'd read every brewing textbook out there and thought I knew. So I like, during the year before I quit my job, I downloaded the curriculum of every brewing school. I'd read them on nights and weekends. And I thought I knew everything about brewing. Yeah. But like once I got in the real world with John, I didn't know anything. And um, I had brewed beer one time with, do you remember Dave Leach? Yeah, um, sure. But on his countertop, uh, <laughs> it was like on a stove, we brewed beer and I, I think it blew up. Yeah. Um, but, you got to run that risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, really, I if, if I had any foresight, I would have loved to have like done an internship at Otter Creek or something like that or... Right. I, ironically, in my professional career, I've met multiple people who were brewers at Otter Creek in college, hmm. which okay. is super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. You have a, a presumably well-paying job. You have an idea. You quit the job. Are you a father at this point? No. So we didn't have kids till... Um, like four years after I quit my job, so okay. With, yeah. with the bigger question being, are you uh, are you anxious as you're going through twenty two hundred and fifty denials, and you've you've given up this job, or are you so uh, sure of the idea that, gosh darn it, somebody is going to say yes after knocking your head against this wall two hundred fifty times? <laughs> there was one time I was like three months in. I'd gotten like 250 rejections, all those contract brewers and really kind of went back to square one. And it was like a Wednesday. And I, I asked my little brother, I was like, can you take a day off and do a ski trip? And okay. we went, we flew to the Pacific Northwest and went to like Mount Baker. And we did a bunch of brewery tours as like inspiration. And mm-hmm. um, that was like a great reset. And then like I hit the ground running again after that. Um, there's probably only like one or two times where like my wife like kind of picked me up from the ashes and was like, you've got this. Um, we had pretty much budgeted for, we drew like a really lean budget for three years and it's either going to work or not. And 
could always go back to my career. Um, but my wife really like pushed me out the door of my job and was like, she's like, I don't want to know you in a decade if you haven't given this a shot, basically. And she was like, this is something that you will look up back on the rest of your life and regret. And mm-hmm. so credit to my wife for both calling out that it was a good idea. And then two years later, when I was done with business planning, essentially, she basically like made me quit my job as well. Nice. Well, do credit to your wife. Big props to John. Great work to you both. Um, now, now you, you've explained that in Europe, craft non-alcoholic beer exists. Here in the States, certainly not previously, is my understanding, outside of O'Doul's. Um, so, so I think of it as sort of an interesting chicken versus egg scenario, where the question is, was the demand for the good you know, for good non-alcoholic beer, was it already there or was it this education process that has, has discovered that this demand existed? Um, Yeah, it's definitely a good question. I wonder that a lot. Um, So Europe's non-alcoholic beer market is almost all lager based. So it's like, it's not that the offerings are that amazing. It's Uh just that there's a lot more social acceptance of it. Uh And that, I think that was happening in the US. There was a huge gulf between like what consumers and retailers wanted and what the brewing industry was giving people. Um, Because before I quit my job, whenever I ran a Google survey, like I ran tons of surveys asking every (laughs) sort of thing. Um, It was always like 55% of adults with some regularity would love a good tasting non-alcoholic beer. But it was 0.3% of the beer category. And it was like, this is like the most unexplainable gulf to me that like, you know, it was some regularity, like a once a month drinker, like if the average person once a month drank, like we're talking about like a 10 to $20 billion category that's basically being underserved. And um, so like the economic evidence was kind of undeniable to me. And like that got affirmed by a number of retailers too, who like, I think they'd been being asked for it. And like Whole Foods was definitely the leader of that. Um, but then also um, like any sort of like natural co-op I went to as well. Um, like Vermont's got some of the best natural co-ops like in the country and like our beer absolutely crushes it at those. And so I, I think people were waiting for something like this to hit the shelves. Um, so it would have happened eventually probably is, yeah. is the answer to the question, I think. Well, you've filled the gap awfully darn well. Um, So a lot of people will say that they want to be an entrepreneur. You know, it's almost said as if it's a career choice. Like, I want to be a businessman. I want to be an engineer. I want to be an entrepreneur. Do you think entrepreneurialism is something you inherently have by nature? Or is it something that that needs to be nurtured? That's a great question. Um, I mean, all of us know in our, like, entrepreneurial journey that, like, nothing is easy like not the smallest thing it's like any like any little thing is like it's really not a molehill it's a mountain and like regu- anything from regulatory to taxes to it, like it so i always advise entrepreneurs like to have like you have to have such a passion for what you're doing because you're gonna have to be like when the alarm goes off at 3 a.m on a saturday you've got to want to be thinking about it on 10 o'clock on friday night 
don't care what's happening in the world. You've got to do the accounting. It's the only time you have in the week. Or <laughs> like, yeah. um, so it's got to be passion driven for sure for it to work. Otherwise, businesses fail all the time. Um, in terms of my own journey, um, I don't think I was. I wasn't looking to be an entrepreneur. I I remember. Um, my boss who sat next to me at my old job always used to like encourage people and think about like, what's your act to like, what are you doing this for? So you can do this later. Hmm. And I always in my head was like, nothing, I'm going to do this for 10, 20 more years. And if they overpay me accidentally too much one year, you'll find me on a farm in Vermont and I'll be there the rest of my life. And, um, but I'd never, but it took the idea of really hitting me over the head and my lifestyle and everything lining up. Um, so for me, at least, like I definitely was not born with entrepreneurialism, but I think I am a natural risk taker. And I think that's kind of a common thread among, um, I know a lot of people who have a lot of great ideas, but don't act on them. And then, yeah, it's, you kind of have to be comfortable with a lot of risk and uncertainty, I think. Yep. Makes perfect sense. Um, in, in interviews that I've read, um, in, in podcasts that I've listened to, you're, you're a very positive person. I mean, to, to have this doggedness to say, you know, I have this idea and it's going to succeed is, is really cool. You have an uplifting personality. Presumably to stay apprised of what's now happening in this, in this NAAF space, non-alcoholic, alcohol-free to our uninformed listener. Uh, do you have any preferred beers among your competitors? Is it in, can you, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, are you staying apprised of what you gotta be staying apprised of what your competitors so, are doing? Yeah. I'm really like very authentically in this category and like, I'm a customer first. Um, like I drink. So at the end of the year, we do send gifts to our top customers and, I was something like number 23 this year out of all paying customers. Um, and so like, yeah, I get a subscription every month with run wild and free wave in it. And I order at least one limited release every month outside of that. And, um, but I do drink other beers in the category. I mean, when I go to a restaurant and there's a Heineken zero on the menu, that's such an upgrade versus what was there 10 years ago. And it's a really just like, cleanly executed Heineken um, like or the Bud Zero I don't think is that bad like there's a time and the place in the world for like a really cleanly executed macro lager mm-hmm. and um, and then um, yeah I so like I definitely try every beer in the categories that come out too and um, our goal like we really send feedback and try to like help people out to get it better because we want nothing but good beer on the shelf there and uh, we've collaborated really closely with people who are getting going and stuff so hmm. it makes perfect sense i mean certainly in the alcoholic craft beer market you see a lot of collaboration among among breweries and brewers and that's really cool uh i know out in washington there's a brewery called three magnets um, and they have a whole line called self care and yeah, I mean, I'll drink IPA 10 times out of 10. I just, I'm that guy who loves IPA, but I love all beers. I love stouts with the exception of lagers. I really don't like lagers. And those guys up at, at uh, three magnets make an amazing lager that I happily reach for anytime. So it's, yeah, awesome. it's sort of amazing what they're doing. 
Um, I think they're doing great stuff out there. Um, I like the Crux beer out there. Um, Rescue Club, um, mm-hmm. Zero Gravity in your backyards, make some beers up there. Yep, yep. Um, so everyone's at different stages of the journey too. And my goal is for like people to come into the category and like knock all the dead wood out of the category and yeah. make the shelf totally awesome. And any bar or restaurant you go into has a great non-alcoholic craft beer on the shelf. Um, yeah, we do have a light beer coming out that I'll send you some. It's it's going to hit in the next couple of weeks, but it's like. So I almost like I drink mostly IPAs also, mm-hmm. but like there is a time and a place for like just a great light beer too. Sure. And whether it's like Saturday post workout, if you're kind of full or anything. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'll definitely send you some of that. Right on. Appreciate it. Um, not to get too far into the weeds. You mentioned, you know, being that, that hardworking entrepreneur, you have to do stuff like figure out the, the regulations Again, not to get too far in the weeds, how how hard is it? You're you're selling alcohol, but you're not because what you're north of zero percent, but less than 0.5. How hard is that whole category? Yeah, so food safety. So in any non-alcoholic beverage, in general, like um, food safety is really scary, and like a lot of things, like everyone thinks of like dairy is like the most sensitive beverage. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every non-alcoholic beverage given the opportunity will act like dairy and be attractive to dangerous bacteria and referment or anything. And so when you're dealing with sensitive populations, especially like food safety is super important. And um, we were really lucky to have a great food safety consultant that we were recommended just out of the blue um, when we were in business planning. But so we um, put in really big expensive tunnel pasteurizers in all our breweries, which like, makes food safety like bulletproof but like that's a big investment hurdle for a lot of breweries because basically you can't do non-alcoholic beer without a tunnel pasteurizer Hmm. and like so that means basically if you want to do non-alcoholic beer it's like upwards of a half a million dollar like equipment investment but also um like our food safety plan is probably like six inches thick and it's a real regulatory document and you have to sign to it and if you sign your name to it, like, and don't follow it, there's like huge repercussions to it. So, mm-hmm. um, it, it's a bit scary. Like the details of the business are, um, done right. Like there's a lot of people glossing over the details, not following the rules and probably making things a lot less safe than they would think. But, mm-hmm. um, it, uh, it, it's something we take super seriously. And, um, so our first regulator, we hired onto our team full time. And she's been an amazing like compliance and quality director um, for our company. So I bet that's awesome. Um, well, that's reassuring. And how about how about for shipping state to state because it's alcohol, but it's not. I mean, it's not the same as shipping maple syrup, which easily goes over state lines. Yeah. So different states have different definitions for beer. Some are ABV based, which is easy. Yep. Some. But some are malt-based, some are other ingredients, some is fermented. Um, so it's kind of the same thing. A lot of people don't know those rules until they find them out. Yeah. Um, but the rules are nuanced for sure. I'd say there's at least 10 states with like nuanced rules. Got it. And yeah. and then there's a whole group of other states where it's either age 18 or 21 for non-alcoholic beer. And it's like... It, yeah, it's like unintentional felony territory where like 
everyone knows drinking non-alcoholic beer is a positive if that person was to otherwise be drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we don't market to kids that are under 21. Good thinking. Um, <laughs> kind of, probably way more details than you wanted. On well, no, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I asked for it. Um, I, I coincidentally within the past le- week, I listened to a really interesting podcast about, uh, well, impossible burger and beyond meat that those two brands. And I just see such an interesting correlation where, you know, you're, you're creating this category that you almost inherently wouldn't know the demand exists. And, and then once the product comes to market, it has just a massive following and interest for any number of reasons. Uh, not to put words in your mouth. Have you ever, have you ever seen that comparison? Have you thought about that comparison to, to say, Hey, what's here's, here's, I mean, it almost goes back to the, the indulgence conversation or, uh, the, the, boutique food conversation um for sure it's um so i eat like 90 percent plant-based 100 percent like ideally it would be 100 percent, but sometimes when i go out to eat i eat meat as like an indulgence and um so david chang actually found us because he was involved in impossible and saw a lot of analogs and what we were doing with what he saw in the early days at impossible um and i i think it's it's the same kind of nuanced story where like um, at face value, we're talking about an alternative category, like meat alternative, alcohol alternative, but like with the plant-based meats, you get into the environmentally positive, the moral reasons and all the other great reasons why you may choose the plant-based diet. Um, and that's not to condemn anyone who feels strongly about any angle on plant-based diets for sure. It's um, there's all sorts of, degrees um and uh but i think non-alcoholic beer is very much the same where it's um it is an alternative but it is also like a positive lifestyle choice and it does have like other compounding positive effects too on family life your health and all those different things Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of different reasons people and it's not necessarily like just like binary that like people drink or not drink um uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I think it was within the same bike ride that I listened to a podcast that you were on and listened to that, and I was like, "Well, we're we're speaking of two completely different categories, but it's amazing the the correlation that exists." Is that your go to? Do you when you work out? Are you strictly podcast? Are you audiobook, music, or? Uh, I am probably ninety percent podcast, and once I've dried up the wells of everything that's that's in my. Uh, you know, subscribe category, then I'll go to an audio book. Uh, I'll listen to music now and again, but I, I just, yeah, I feel like it's, it. I feel like podcasts are hilarious because on one hand, I listen and zone out completely. And I, I wonder when I'm, how much I'm actually absorbing because on its face, you feel like you're going to educate yourself or learn something or hear a funny anecdote. And okay, I've brought up listening to podcasts a handful of times here. And so obviously I'm absorbing something, but there are plenty of times I finish a five-hour ride listening to five hours of podcasts. I'm like, I have no idea what I just listened to. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like it's you can almost get someone's like personal book, even if they haven't written a biography, like very often, like in this kind of long-form conversation. Mm -hmm. Like 
you don't have to wait for that person to get around with a biography. It's like you can learn about like anyone you want to learn about almost in podcasts these days. And yeah. very often, like so many books are like the first chapter, the intro, and maybe like some chapters are meaningful, but there's a lot of filler to get to 300 pages in there. Where like in a podcast, you can get the distilled version. And I love that. Big time. Yeah, I'm always entertained when <laughs> any sort of youthful star, uh, whether it's a musician or in my world cycling, you know, a 22-year-old 20, who's written a book, you're just like, I realize you have 22 years of experience to fill this book, but like you said, there's a heck of a lot of filler in there. Yeah, I saw a on Twitter last night, I was reading a thread from someone, I was like, oh, this is a good thread. And then I realized it was like a first-time founder, like fairly early in the journey writing about like what successful business leadership looks like yeah and i was like oh i was like i might circle back and see what this thread <laughs> looks like in like three years <laughs> i was like i'm definitely still in digest mode myself for people who are way farther down the road than i am right on um so i i will move on to wrapping up i often speak with purely cyclists um but but we're gonna we're gonna switch up for the final three questions in the following way. Typically, it's what is your favorite place to ride a bike? What is the number one place you would like to ride a bike that you've never been? And with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? So let's change the verb to from biking to drinking. <laughs> what is cool. the what is your favorite place to sit down and have an athletic beer? Wow. Um... That's a good question. Um, I mean, so I, my favorite beer is always like that first beer with friends and family. And that could either be at a finish line. It could be like when you're literally like high-fiving your friend and grabbing that beer. Mm -hmm. Or it could be the first first beer when you walk into a tap room, a bar, or a restaurant, and you're like meeting up with someone you haven't seen in a while and you grab that first beer. Um, I, I think that's my favorite beer. It's it, it could be literally anywhere, I think. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like rich. Actually, it's like, yeah, I will say one of my fit. Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. One of my favorite beers was um, on the presidential traverse with my little brother a few years ago. Um, we did like a out and back presidential traverse weekend a couple of years ago that was a blast. And um, like halfway on the way back, we had a couple of beers at the top, which was great. Nice. Uh, one of the tops. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you're right. You said it earlier. It's like great meals complemented by a great beverage is complemented by the right setting. You know, I mean, if, if, if you did it in a vacuum or did it in an empty room, it certainly wouldn't have the same effect. Okay. <laughs> As you are aspiring thirst, what is the number one place that you would like to drink that you've never drank? <laughs> mm. Um, some of like the great European breweries, um, they could be big name or they could just be super cool mm -hmm. local breweries. Um, I, in like, I went to Vienna and Prague once, but have been like those, like, old, really old European, like, local places. I think that's super cool. And I'd love to just see more of those and, mm -hmm. um, anything from super old British pubs to like, I would love to get to like Amsterdam and Germany and see some of those world famous breweries. Mm 
and just how they make that like world-class beer for thousands of years, basically. Yeah, literally. There's, there's this really cool overlap of Belgian cycling and the Belgian beers and like, you know, the Trappist beers that have been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is just so steeped in tradition. Uh, with whom? Living or otherwise, fictional or non, who would you like to share a beverage with? I think I'd have to go um, outside of Tom Brady, Ken Grossman, I think. Right. Um, mm-hmm. He's kind of the guy who started it all, but he's also such an interesting guy. Um, like what they've done in sustainability like you still see pictures of him driving construction equipment, working on sustainability projects. And yeah. I think he's probably just such an interesting guy, but like all of us owe him such a debt to gratitude of like the ball he got rolling with craft beer essentially. So nice. um, I know there are other people who did it before him, but like, I think he was, he like paved a lot of roads for people who came behind him for mm-hmm. sure. So it would be more of a thank you beer than anything else probably. Yeah. Perfect answer. Well, given that you are on the East Coast and not in San Diego, uh, it's probably right around dinner time. Uh, I won't take any more of your time. I really appreciate the time, Bill. Uh, Awesome insight, awesome conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah, it was great to reconnect and would love to get a workout whether it's on our feet on skis on the bike or anything anytime soon um so yeah definitely let me know whenever you're around either and i'll definitely give you a shout in vermont perfect that's awesome sweet thank you very much cool thank you bill thank you for giving us a far far better alternative than what was previously out there Thank you for your tasty, sudsy beverages. Thank you for the conversation. As I said at the top of the show, I am thrilled every day, ending my day with Therabody's Recovery Air Jet Boots. Between traveling, training, racing, I personally don't have time to make it to massage to be able to be at my best. If I could, I would. I love massage. The timing of things is just not in the cards. Therefore, what is part of my routine is every evening after dinner, after putting Hazel to bed, after chores are done, slide into my jet boots and simply recover. You can do the same. Sit back, relax, recover, and go to therabody.com king to get your Therabody recovery airs today. The jet boots in particular are incredible. Plus, with recovery airs, 60-day money-back guarantee, plus free shipping, there is no risk. Once more, therabody.com slash king. That's all from here. That's all for now. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.